We are in Mark chapter seven, starting at verse one. We are only taking a portion of this text today. It literally goes down to about verse 23. But I wanna deal with some of that separately, even though they're obviously inseparable in terms of a text and the dialogue Jesus was having with uh, the people in front of him. It begins in Mark chapter seven saying this, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Uh, holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands. And Jesus said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Back in Jesus' time, the Pharisees and the scribes were an interesting group of people. They had constructed a whole religion above the law that they had imposed upon the people and they had adopted it. It is a challenge to think about it, and we'll step into that in a moment, but one of the things that my wife and I did this past couple weeks is we watched the coronation of Charles III of England and Queen Camilla get crowned. If you want to see tradition, that's the place to go. Uh, They have more tradition and pomp and pageantry than you can shake a stick at. If you think our weddings are fancy, they hold nothing to what coronations are in England. In fact, I am pretty much sure that there is nothing on the planet that holds to the pageantry and the pomp and the circumstance of what coronation is. Uh, They ride to, from Westminster Abbey and they uh, ride in a particular chariot. When he's crowned king, he rides back in a gold chariot filled with six horses. I, I mean, every little thing means something and is part of tradition. It is really quite interesting. It's practices that have been going on for centuries, and while they make some small modifications to different things as they try to adapt to the ever-changing world that we live in, it is virtually the same thing that they've done for decades and centuries. There are some controversies, of course, that go with it. Uh, One of being the cost of the coronation and all the money that is spent on a family that has a certain level of headship and recognition in England and around the world, but in some respects has very little authority. They have tremendous influence, but not necessarily a ton of authority. Uh, Apparently, and even though we won't know the numbers till 2024, they estimate that this coronation probably would have spent somewhere around $125 million to crown him king. That's an impressive coronation. Uh, the other parts of the, the, the history and the tradition is where the people have to do homage to the king. It's basically a declaration of allegiance. And at one point that in history, they would have all the, the nephews and family all declaring their sense of homage. I think it was Prince William who was the only one who stood on behalf of the family that did it on their behalf rather than all going through that process. So there are some changes that they make uh, 
King Charles was being really thoughtful. He only had about 2,000 people at his coronation. I think when mom was coronated, there was 8,000 people. So he was cutting way back on the pomp and circumstance. Uh, part of the process of uh, the homage of peers was replaced by a homage of the people. So they would make this great declaration and they would declare God save the king or God save King Charles. I, I can't help but listening to all this and think back to the Old Testament. I'm kind of like, boy, they, they borrowed a lot of stuff from the Old Testament when they coronated a king. But as they move through this, the controversy, even from the scepters that are used and all the elaborate and opulent different symbols that are put in the ceremony have controversy to them. And as you begin to work through it, even Queen Camilla, the whole title that she was going to get was part of a debate and, and a question of exactly what her title was gonna be once uh, King Charles was going to be crowned and coronated. And of course, the big issue is, what's the relevance of this monarchy anyway? I mean, it, it goes back over centuries, and, but what's the real relevance other than spending a ton of money and having a figurehead in your country? What does it really do? The, the, the challenge of that is fairly self-evident, but I would suggest to you that all of us are touched by some kind of tradition, some kind of teaching, some behaviors or habits that we do. We were joking this morning that one of the first months I was here, I made you all get up for where I typically see you sit and I made you move to different places in the auditorium. That lasted a week because you went right back to where you were going the very next week. So we all have our little traditions and habits that we do. In fact, I suspect that some of you, if I made you sit somewhere else, it would ruin the whole morning because I'm just not used to looking at life from this perspective. But if there is any place on earth that traditions and happen to affect an organization, a group of people, it'll be the church. And you can go to all kinds of different denominations, whether you call them Protestant or Anglican or Catholic or whatever background you came from, some of them are really steeped in tradition, others are not. But traditions affect all churches. You get churches that have, that tradition is the, sort of the hallmark of why they exist. When I showed up in Portland, Oregon and ended up taking over the pastorate there, it was a Baptist church, and Baptist church have Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday prayer meeting, that's what we do. Until I canceled Sunday evening and Wednesday prayer meeting, we, that, that's the way it was gonna be. In fact, the only way that I could get Sunday evening canceled, even though in spite of having 130 some people in the morning, we get like 10 people show up at night and I'd have to prepare a message for that. I sat down with the board chair and he goes, well, but this is what we do. And I finally came to the conclusion, even after making all kinds of appeals to make adjustments in this tradition, that the only way it was gonna change is if, as I sat across from my chairman at a lunch thing, I said, we can keep doing it, I'm fine with that. There's only one little change I wanna make. And he said, what's that? I just said, I'm not coming anymore. <laughs> and he said, well, it won't work if you don't come. And I said, if you haven't noticed, it's not working now. <laughs> but that's the problem with tradition, is that we become so secure and used to it that we'll do it whether it's working or not. And so the, the, the issue is, and Jesus dealt with it with the Pharisees and the scribes, they had created their whole traditions, teaching and policies and rules and practices that were built on biblical ideas but didn't really have anything to do with the Bible anymore. And we'll walk through some of that a little bit. 
But we have to understand that the source of religion or traditions often come from the human ingenuity. They are not necessarily given by God. God has his own blueprint and spiritual blueprint by the way he wants us to live. We have it in terms of God's word and we struggle with what that means as we reread it because we know it was written in a different culture and it was written in a different language and we try to figure out what's relevant to us and what's not. And so some churches practice things legalistically almost. Uh, My wife and I, my wife came from a Plymouth Brethren background. And so they have certain things above the gospel and everything else from the way they do communion. They probably wouldn't like the way we do communion because it's not the centerpiece of their meeting and and, uh, there's other certain rules and regulations they do. Uh, Some of them are really camp on 1 Corinthians 11 where your hair has to be a certain length or you're not really being spiritual. Uh, If you've come from some of those backgrounds, you understand the challenge of ideas that are built on biblical passages, but the question is, are they really traditions that we need to be hanging on to? And so as we begin to think through this, I want you to notice that the Pharisees and the scribes are the ones identified here, and some of them came from Jerusalem. And the reason why that's important is because the Pharisees and the scribes are a really significant group in the life of, of the Jews. The Pharisees are actually what they would call a closed community. Now, while they're different, the, the, probably the co- closest illustration to understand the idea of closed community might be like the Amish or the Hutterite or a group like that. They have, the Pharisees were really concerned about purity rules and laws and keeping those meticulously. So you'll find Amish groups and others that have withdrawn from the normal type life and and sort of all the benefits or the distractions that we have, and they create their own community. It's fairly colonial in what it does, and there are certain things they just won't take advantage of, and that's part of the rules of that particular community. I'm not saying that they are the same as the Pharisees and scribes in terms of their theology, but I'm saying that a closed community is what the Pharisees were at, and they were, as it were, experts in rules of purity. So that's why you're gonna get comments about how you wash your hands and the cleansing of pots and those kinds of things, which we'll talk about in a minute. But that was one group they were dealing with. Uh, The others were the scribes, and they were kind of like the, the ordained ministers of that particular time. Uh, If a young person wanted to be um, part of that group, they would have a teacher that they would learn under, and they would have to master things of the Old Testament and their certain style of communicating and teaching. And when they mastered those things and did a really good job of learning those things, then at some point they could get ordained. And these groups, they would have individuals that are part of the Sanhedrin and, and some of the civil law and that kind of thing. So both these groups together were a, a, they were, in a sense, unique in and of themselves. There's only certain kinds of people who could belong to it, but they had great influence on the people of Israel because the ordinary person wanted to do things that pleased God. And while the Pharisees and the scribes probably had good intention, they kind of got off course. And so when Jesus steps into this, we're gonna find out how far off course they were. But the thing you have to remember is that these guys were kind of on the front lines of setting the spiritual culture of Israel. And the fact that it tells us that in the, in the front end of this text that all Israel's involved probably doesn't mean everybody, but it shows that they had influence, that they were the ones that helped sort of set the tone and the practices of what religious appropriateness was in terms of being part of this community called Israel. 
And so they were front lines. And it, we're told in Mark 7, we'll notice, that their concern here is that the disciples weren't eating with washed hands. Now you and I would probably go on like, feels like they're making a mountain out of a molehill. Like, we get the fact that maybe this came from somewhere, but we're not sure. Let me give you a little bit of history. Exodus chapter 30, verses 17, the Lord speaks to Moses about how Aaron and his sons, being the priests, were to enter into the tent of meeting and present themselves to God when they were offering sacrifices or meeting with God. And in this particular context, it says they should put this bronze, uh, a basin of bronze that would have water in it, and it would be uh, between the tent of meeting and the altar, and they would put water in it, and then Aaron and his sons, when they went in there, were to wash their hands and their feet and other things so that they would be cleansed ceremonially when they went to approach God. It didn't just show respect, this is what a holy God demanded of those who were coming into his presence. And so they were to wash their hands. And, this, and the warning here, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Now you never thought not washing your hands would get you killed, but in this particular situation, because they're approaching God, God says, here's what I demand of you. Now of course, there are other passages in the Old Testament that speak of this. For instance, when you go to Leviticus chapter 15, you will, it's rules about purity and cleanness and uncleanness, and so it's talking about bodily discharges for men or women. And so it basically says, if anyone touches, has a bodily discharge, and they touch things like pots and those kinds of things, or someone touches them, or you come into contact, there's a danger that you might be unclean. It didn't mean you had done a moral sin, but you were unclean and you had to do things in order to present yourself clean again in terms of the community. So the Pharisees had picked this up and you'll notice it talks about things like the marketplace and other things, but they were really conscientious that we don't know what other people are doing and so when we go and do things, you might touch something unclean. It was a little bit like kind of our COVID thing. You know, everyone was wearing masks, you gotta be careful what you you touch, you want to be careful how close you were to people because you didn't know when you are going to get caught with this or not. And then every building in the planet now has sanitizers that when you walk in, you can clean your hands and wash your hands so that you don't catch something. Same kind of idea. But this is sort of took off and the, and the Pharisees and the scribes had started going, all right, we got to think of every possible way that person could become unclean and we got to start putting contingencies in here. The what if this happens, and what if that happens, and so they were making all these rules. There's an interesting quote by Philip Johnson who said this, the Pharisees in their zeal for the law had deduced innumerable ways in which a person might contact ceremonial defilement, which, while not sinful, nevertheless made one Levitically unclean and unable to approach God in worship. Correspondingly, they had developed an elaborate program of washings to counteract this defilement. The discussion with Jesus in regard to the unwashed hands of his disciples had nothing to do with this ceremonial act. See, the real place you saw that was for the high priests when they went in to meet with God. The other was just purification laws, but now they've carried it to the nth degree. It's kind of like if a little bit of this is good, like if washing your hands coming in is good, then washing them four more times when you get in there is better. And so these are the rules that people need to live by. But the problem is, is that the moment we start extracting a truth and start de developing practices and traditions is that one, 
often they become obsolete. They're temporary and they're ways of trying to deal with things, but it doesn't take long before things are obsolete and they're not relevant because things have changed. The other problem for the Pharisees and scribes is they started creating rules that were permanent, but they really weren't reflecting what God's word said. They were drawing you know, principles from it and applying it to all kinds of other things. By the way, it's a problem we have today. Us people who stand up with a microphone are always seeking to have, out of our zeal and passion for the word, interpreting the scriptures, trying to explain the relevance of it, and uh, we've got to be careful how we do that. I was, uh, I think it was Malachi that God was confronting his people because they were giving sacrifices that were wounded and leftovers and worthless sacrifices and God was saying, listen, I've loved you, but you don't love me back. And they're going, what do you mean? We showed up. And God says, well, why don't you take that sacrifice and give it to your governor and uh, see whether he accepts it. And so Jesus, God is saying to his people, you wouldn't even treat a human person with this kind of disrespect. Where's my honor? Now, if I wanted to get cute with that principle, I would say, well, is there situations in life where we really honor people? We got some weddings coming up. What do we do at weddings? There are special occasions, and what we do is that we dress to the hilt. People are wearing tuxes, they're wearing elaborate dresses that they'll only wear once and spend a ton of money on them, but that's the way we show respect and honor people that are getting married. So my conclusion is, well, if we're gonna show that much respect to people and dress up that way, every one of you needs to show up with a suit and a dress next week on Sunday morning. Yeah, I already know who said that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but see, that's the kind of thing that happens at, and you have, at, with the ordained and other people is they start extrapolating principles from this context and start throwing it around like a dead cat to hit every context they want because it reflects their personal convictions, not necessarily what the Bible says. Does that make sense? And there's a danger that we do this in a lot of the things that we do in life. But let me point out three things in relationship to human tradition, especially in relationship to the Pharisees and scribes. Human traditions or teachings often come out of good intention. There are some individuals who are control freaks and dictators who want to create a whole set of rules to control people, but a lot of the stuff that you'll discover, especially in churches, were started way back when, and it was well-meaning based on the culture that they lived in. But it doesn't take long to see where things are obsolete. If you go through church bylaws, uh, you see things written in there that are like, you've gotta be kidding. First church when I was in Portland, first line on the bylaws says the church is a democracy. Really? Well, gotta be careful, because when you deal with churches that that the community of faith has the final authority, that's pretty close. But it's borrowed language from our political system and said it's we the people that rule here. And I've seen so many churches destroyed by we the people. In fact, I know of a friend of mine who had to quit his pastorate because the bylaws allowed people in the congregation who were disgruntled to start a petition and rally people to their position in order not just to be heard but to get things changed. I said, wow, that shows a lot of trust. Wow, there's a, there's a group of people that can sit down and have a normal conversation and try to find the mind of Christ. We've got a petition that we can get our way. 
And so there's churches that have traditions, bylaws, policies, rules and regulations that if a person knows how to leverage it properly, they can create a lot of damage. But they often become obstacles. But they weren't started by people who often were vindictive. They were well-meaning people who wanted to try to have best practices, if I can borrow the phrase. But the second thing is that human religion typically focuses on the external conformity to rules and regulations and not to matters of the heart. It's one of the quickest ways you can figure out traditions uh, is that it often deals with outward, external things, not the heart. When I was in Portland, I had an elder who was a good friend, but a little bit of a pain, because he was so stuck on protecting traditions, mostly because his dad was the one that helped establish them, that you couldn't get him to change anything. In fact, he hated it when some of the colleges nearby, uh, we had kids that come from there, because his attitude is, well, they're chasing every new fad in the book, and we don't need it. We can just hold to our traditions. Well, what happens when we become vigilant in terms of protecting our traditions is that the only thing you're left with at some point is traditions and no people. Because the one thing that you'll discover, at least in this text that we'll get to, is that human traditions that are in the sense the same as religion end up sucking the life out of things and keeping people from God. They don't foster life. Now, Human religion just ends up controlling people. And we've all experienced it. Uh, you know, you get churches, for instance, and I'm not gonna label denominations, but if you get too much of a fundamental sort of legalistic background, the only thing that matters is being right, and so it often gives churches permission to spend most of their time criticizing and complaining about other churches who don't do it their way. Absolutely need to be committed to the essential doctrines of the faith that are non-negotiable, that's critical. Those are, in a sense, traditions that we hold true to. But then once you get past the essentials, then there's a whole bunch of secondary issues that now people are making essential in order to leverage their differences with other churches. Legalism, you grow up in legalism, and it's not the best word for it, but everything in a church seems to be ruled by rules and regulations. You will dress a certain way, that worship has to look like this. You can only use certain kinds of instruments. Our programs need to look like this, and we're not changing them because this is what we've always done. And people become more faithful to programs and to traditions than they do to Jesus. Now, in their mind, that's not anything. That's what it doesn't have to do. It's the way we're committed to Jesus is we keep this tradition. But unless it violates conservative, orthodox theology and biblical truth, it's all about personal preferences and it's meant to control people. By the way, your homes have certain religious practices. Well, they may not always be religious, but the worst scenario I've seen of this, well, not the worst, but one of the bad ones, and I experienced this when I was uh, in my first church and I was in a village church. We invited a family over and we had a meal with them, and, the, and the, what they spent the entire meal doing is criticizing the service and criticizing the way I preached. And like, they just like, I mean, I have to be honest, they just wouldn't shut up about it. They just kept going and going and going and making fun of something that I said, and I repeated this word three or four times and all the rest of it, so like after about 10 minutes of this, I kinda had it, even though I was new. 
And I said, look, I obviously owe you guys an apology because if you guys came to actually worship Jesus and hear from his word, obviously I was a massive distraction to that and I apologize, will you forgive me? Well, I guarantee it shut the conversation up really quick. But here's the point. I know people in churches, and I've done this for a lot of years where I've heard stories all over the place where there's Christians who will come and they'll sit in services and they'll give lip service to and they'll even sing some of the songs, but when they leave the building, their kids hear them doing nothing more than complaining that they did this wrong, or they didn't do that right, or that should be different. And what, what they end up doing is that's the religion of their home. They claim to know Jesus, but everything is a complaint. And the kids either buy into that and they simply become masters at complaining and criticizing and comparing what they do, Or the kids at some point go, well, you know, I thought Jesus was different than this. What happened to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? All I'm hearing is whine and complain and whatever. And so kids end up abandoning the home. It often gets blamed on the church, but the problem is the religion of the home is the one that created it. Now, people wouldn't see that as their religion, But that's the practices and the rules and the behaviors that they have cultivated in their home. And in a sense, that's what the Pharisees were doing. You're not obeying our rules and our our regulations about what it means to please God and live for him in in a godly way, and so we're going after you. And they're not discussing orthodox doctrine like who's Jesus, you didn't wash your hands the right way. And boy, I tell you, I've interacted as a regional director with so many churches that have literally killed themselves because they're fighting over carpet and other kinds of things that are literally meaningless to the ultimate goal of the gospel. And yet they'll split over stuff like this. Because this is our tradition. This is what we grew up with. This is what's been part of this church for years. And if you cancel Sunday evening service, don't you dare cancel Wednesday prayer meeting. Because as ba- I literally had a lady say this. As Baptists, that's what we have. And my response to her is, well, listen, when you start showing up Wednesday nights, then we'll keep doing it. But I'm the only one who's showing up, so I think I have every right to cancel it. But the the heartbeat of tradition and religion created by human beings is a constant process of trying to force other people to to live by my personal convictions. And it's just totally unhealthy. Dave Whitaker, our president, made a comment the other day talking about something completely related. But there's lots of churches who will claim that they want to make disciples But as he said, what they've become is weekend event planners to try to entertain people. And part of that can be the fault of the leadership because they got into, they get caught in this performance stuff, but sometimes it's, that's the expectation of the people. I'm here, you need to entertain us. You need to, to make this creative. You need to make this in such a way that I walk away maybe worshiping the experience more than coming away worshiping Jesus. 
Every one of us can create our own religion if we want to. Our own sense of demands and expectations and rules and regulations that our spouse ought to live by, that our kids ought to live by, that if a person's really my friend, that they ought to live by it. And the danger here is that the confusion of religion is that it does have a certain appearance of wisdom. It does have this sort of smacking of, of good intentions and trying to do the right thing. Because it always tends to be built, at least in, in, as far as God's people are concerned, whether it's the Pharisees and scribes or whether you run it today, is that people will read something in the Bible and then they'll create a rule that we think people have to live by. And the Pharisees and the scribes had a zeal for the law of God, but they created this whole new level of rules that they thought, because it was their interpretation of the Old Testament law and the secret knowledge that the scribes certainly felt that they were entitled to, that they had the authority and right to tell everybody, you need to adopt this. But the confusion of religion or traditions in this appearance of evil is best captured in Colossians chapter two. I don't know any passage that captures it better than this one. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value stopping the indulgences of the flesh. See, we don't need more religion and rules and regulations. The Christian life is to be lived according to the power of the indwelling spirit of the living God who helps us to live beyond our own brokenness and selfishness and the flesh and the influence of the world to say, out of love for Christ, I'm gonna make whatever sacrifices I can so that I can enjoy and be satisfied by Jesus. Now sometimes it's hard, I get it. If you grew up and you have the personality that you're a rule keeper, you love it when someone says, Here's the rule, just do it. You go, good, I don't have to think, I just go and do it. The danger, however, is that who's setting the rules for you? The danger for all of us is that, a, that human voices mean more than Jesus' voice. That their expectations seem to weigh heavier on us than Jesus' voice. And if we don't do certain things, don't do certain programs, don't do certain practices in the way that we grew up with, then we're obviously slipping off our spiritual foundations and we're not spiritual anymore. And my most profound theological response to that is, really? And I would dare say I've seen more churches break up because of religion within the group that keeps trying to levy their religion on everybody else than almost anything else. It even trumps moral failure. Because people are more deeply committed to religion and tradition than they often are of Jesus. Now, if you doubt my word about it, ask Jesus. 
Because Jesus didn't exactly stand up and go, man, I'm so glad you Pharisees and scribes are here. You're just the people we need. Now, my Bible might be different than yours, but I'm pretty sure yours doesn't read that way. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Wow, that's like changing yours pretty fast. Why aren't your disciples living up to our rules and regulations? Now, you remember that guy Isaiah? Well, you guys, you guys are the exact people that he was talking about, and you're about as hypocritical as anybody can get. And then he levels this on them. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You've abandoned the commands of God for the precepts of people. You don't see Jesus ticked off very often, but this is one of them. Jesus runs over them with both feet. And the reason for it is many, but let me give you three reasons. Religion ruins our relationship with God. It just does. It turns this powerful, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe and his son and the work of the Holy Spirit, and it turns it into duty-driven, obligation things of rules and regulations that seem to make sense because it keeps everything black and white. I know exactly what I'm to do, and I know exactly what I'm not going to do, but, but it sucks the life out of the relationship. I mean, how many marriages do you know that work on, like, total rules and regulation? Yeah, there's a few. The husband says, here's the things, they don't say this, but here's the things that you're supposed to be doing. If you don't do it, then I get annoyed. And the wife has certain expectations about what the husband's supposed to do, and if he doesn't do it, then that's when they get annoyed. That doesn't count for shopping. I just can't figure out for the life of me which one of the seven different options she wants. I can't figure it out. That's, I'm always bringing home the wrong thing. So it's like, why don't you do the shopping because I can't get this thing figured out. But religion tends to ransack our responsibility to God's word. Instead of, of thriving and knowing God's love and, and, the, and the direction he wants us to live and knowing his mind, we end up being fearful about what people will say. And you often can sort of judge in your own heart how much religion has affected you when you want to do something and you think it's what God wants, but all of a sudden you start worrying more about what people will think than what Jesus has asked you to do. And finally, religion replaces God's truth with our own truth. You know, in our world, our feelings are often our final authority now in our culture. You get people that are, won't even read, they say, I've got this dilemma and I need to make a decision, and often the first thing I'll say is like, well, what does God's word say? Well, I don't know. I think I've told you, I had a gentleman sit down, it's a long story so we won't go into it, but he decided he was gonna divorce his wife. So I opened up to like Matthew 19, I said, well, like, and it was with the intent that he's gonna marry another gal, so I opened up the Bible and I said, well, tell me how you work through this passage. It was literally, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. So I said, I just wanna know how you work through that, because I'm open to it, but I wanna know, and he goes, well, 
over the last two years, or literally the last five years, he says, nobody's ever even mentioned this. And I said, well, why didn't you think of it? Like, why does someone else have to mention it? Why, why? because, and I hate to say it, lots of times you run into people, they don't care what God's word says, this is how I feel and that's what I want. And we've created our own religion based on our feelings to say, I don't care what the word says, doesn't God want me to be happy, then this is what makes me happy and I'm gonna go do this. There are five things that I'll say are biblical traditions. There are more, but here are some essentials. First of all, it's the gospel. The second one is baptism that they've, we've been handed down to us by Jesus and the disciples. What we did this morning in terms of communion or what we call the Lord's Supper is one that Jesus passed on to us. That one shouldn't be a difficult debate. I think Jesus told his disciples, you need to do this, or when you do it, you remember me. The scriptures is God's revelation, not the invention of people, is a tradition, a teaching that we hold to. And Jesus said, make disciples. Now, there's others that we can put in. If we took our doctrinal statement and threw it in here, that would be traditional theological biblical truth that we hold to. But once you get past that, you're gonna find churches that are gonna agree and disagree on a ton of other things in terms of how they operate and their philosophy of ministry and what things need to be done. But once you get past that, it doesn't say that we have to have a round table in the middle of the auditorium and if you don't circle that for communion, then you're not in the inner circle and you don't get to participate. It's much trickier at times for us to sort through our personal convictions and what I would sometimes call our own traditions and our rules and think that what are the biblical traditions that God wants us to cling to? Let me finish with this. I'm not guessing many of you, did anybody watch the coronation of Charles III? That's what I thought. Well, you know, I get it. You know, you're not Canadian, you know, who cares? It doesn't matter, right? But uh, when Barb and I watched it, it's an amazing thing. Uh, aside from all the, the tradition, the elaborate garments and clothing that they wear and the military guard and all the people that are going on, what was absolutely amazing to me is how much the Bible and scripture was infused into that ceremony. It was astounding. They have one gentleman read from Colossians 1, 9 through 17. The, 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 the individuals that were officiating talked about the scriptures and Charles' responsibility to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? They made some adjustments in the ceremonies because uh, they had Charles III do something that no one's ever done, and that is he prayed out loud the prayer that he was asking God to to help him fulfill his responsibility. And in that prayer, he talked about the gospel and that he is part of, uh, his responsibility is protecting the Protestant religion, but he's also praying that he would support all the other religions. I'm like, I don't know how you do that, but anyway. But, 
But what, 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 when I finished watching it, it was, the, the thought came to my mind, I wonder what the reality is on, on those people where he puts his hand on a Bible and swears an oath of his responsibility before God. They preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They read from the scriptures. And yet the question I'm going through my mind is thousands of people are not only watching it, but millions are watching it on TV. And I'm kind of going, I wonder why, if how many people there are honoring God with their lips, but their heart is so far away from him. And all I want to try to encourage you this morning is let that possibility not be you. Let it not be us. Because it's so easy for us to take our own personal convictions and what we think they are and start saying this is the standard of spirituality or holiness or godliness and start trying to infuse that on others and churches who do this create almost a cultic type culture. This is our authority. This is our authority. Not this. Not this, but this. This is what matters. Jesus is what matters. The gospel is what matters. Father, you know, we live in a world where people are feeling like everything is disintegrating, and it would make perfect sense that individuals would try to create structure rules and regulations to stabilize the chaos in our lives. Those things may be band-aids for a short period of time, but they will never do what the unfailing, unchanging word of God will do because it grounds us in a relationship with you centered on the person of your son, the Lord Jesus, and the work of the gospel so that we might have an eternal perspective on everything. And you've given us your spirit so that we are not alone trying to figure this out on our own, that we have the greatest resource in all of the universe so that we might live and understand the abundance of life because we are satisfied in Christ. And we do need to hold to biblical traditions that keep us anchored to the scriptures and to our relationship with you. But Father, we have to be so careful that we don't start creating our own religions that we try to impose on others. Father, we know our vulnerabilities, and so while we plead that you would work in such a way that it would never be said of us as individuals or families or a community of faith, that we honor you with our lips, but our heart is far from you, and that we've exchanged the word of God for the teachings and precepts of men, Father, God forbid that you would allow that to happen in our hearts. And in that sense, guard our hearts. Keep us face to face with Christ. Help us to love your word and to honor you. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.